we do clearly have lakes where they haven't had blooms and then recently i'd say within the last 10 years as part of the regular monitoring programs that occur people have seen an increase or an occurrence of these these blooms uh example in idaho is twin lakes last year it was the first time it had a toxic bloom in its history so people are are naturally uh upset about that and very concerned in terms of what the future may hold Meet Frank Wilhelm, a professor in the Department of Fish and Wildlife Sciences at the University of Idaho, and associate director of the Center for Research on Invasive Species. For Frank, research is about solving real-world problems. He has worked across the Northwest to preserve water quality for recreation, farming, drinking, and general lake health. He's also specialized in studying algae that can cause lakes to become toxic for humans, animals, and plants. Welcome everyone to The Vandal Theory. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at U of I and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at the University of Idaho. Throughout the third season of the podcast, which we're recording and producing remotely, we're going to talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. Frank and I talked about his projects investigating the causes of toxic lakes in the region. Frank, uh, thank you so much for calling the podcast today. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, thank you, Lee, for the opportunity. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick to everybody? Sure. My name is Frank Wilhelm. I'm a uh, limnologist. That's a person who studies inland waters. And I work in the Department of Fish and Wildlife Sciences in the College of Natural Resources, obviously at the University of Idaho. So one of the kind of major things that you study, you've got a, a number of different projects going, but one of the major things is you work in toxic lakes. So can you first just tell us what is a toxic lake and what makes it toxic? So toxic lakes come in a variety of flavors. One, you could have some metal toxicity. The one, the toxicity that I'm interested in is toxicity that originates from cyanobacteria or blue-green algae, as they used to be called. And these are potent toxins that are produced by these algae. They occur at certain times of the year and in certain lakes under certain conditions. And they are really important to humans and to wildlife. And that's really what captivates my interest is to understand what happens, what are the conditions that produce these toxins, and then how do we best deal with them and hopefully avoid the toxicity from occurring in the future. So we do have some of these in Idaho, correct? Yes, we do. There's uh, a number of them. There's uh, the... Idaho Department of Environmental Quality runs a webpage that attracts uh, these toxic lakes and they're in response to a public concern. So the, the uh, department doesn't have enough funds to test all of the waters all of the time. So it's a response to public concern. And if they do find toxins, then those lakes are posted and the notifications are posted on the website. So now are these toxic lakes, are they this lake? is toxic every year and it has been toxic for a hundred years. And this is just, you know, standard every summer, not a big deal. Or does it change over time? Are we seeing more of them, less of them? What's going on trend-wise with these guys? So that's an interesting question. Cyanobacteria, or as they were called, blue-green algae, as I've said before, 
or actually the organisms that gave us our oxygen atmosphere a long time ago. And so they were some of the first organisms on the planet. So they're really ubiquitous and they're widely distributed in all of the aquatic environments and then also in some terrestrial environments that are moist. The toxicity that they produce and the toxins are a relatively recent discovery. And then as we've looked for them, we're finding them in different places. However, uh, part of the thinking goes, and this is actually borne out by data, is that their occurrence is increasing because they love these warm, hot, warm, stagnant conditions. And with our um, climatic change that's occurring globally, we are seeing more of those conditions. So as a result of that, we are seeing an increase in these blooms over time. So we call them cyanohabs or bacteria, um, cyanobacteria blooms or habs, harmful algal blooms. And we do see an increase over, the, over time in them. However, we also have more people looking for them because we're aware of them. So that's a, a bit of a thorny issue in terms of, are they really increasing? In some cases, yes, for lakes that have been monitored for a long time. But then in other lakes where we're just starting to monitor now, we don't really have that history to go back and ask, answer that same question. So it's hard to nail down definitively just because if you weren't watching for them, then it's hard to say that they were an absolute yes or no. Correct. And this has been shown over and over again in science that when we discover something, we look for it, then we tend to find it in other places. It's just that nobody's looked for it before. So it, it presents a bit of a conundrum. But we do clearly have lakes where... They haven't had blooms, and then recently, I'd say within the last 10 years, as part of the regular monitoring programs that occur, people have seen an increase or an occurrence of these, these blooms. Uh, example in Idaho is Twin Lakes. Last year, it was the first time it had a toxic bloom in its history. So people are, are naturally uh, upset about that and very concerned in terms of what the future may hold. We have other lakes in northern Idaho. Fernand Lake is a good example. Hayden Lake is also toxic at times. Uh, Black Lake is uh, a usual suspect that occurs usually on a fairly regular basis. These tend to be lakes that are very rich in nutrients, uh, especially in phosphorus. There's this imbalance that occurs. Uh, we're very good, humans are very good at mobilizing phosphorus from the landscape. And then we get an imbalance between the nitrogen and the phosphorus in the water column. And those, those are both essential elements for the growth of algae. And when phosphorus becomes more abundant, then nitrogen becomes limiting. So it's in short supply. And the cyanobacteria, they're like the legumes of the terrestrial world. They can fix atmospheric nitrogen so they can reach up from the air and fix nitrogen it's expensive to do that, but they can overcome that nitrogen limitation. So by liberating the phosphorus from the landscape and encouraging that to go to our water bodies, we are upsetting that natural balance and we actually promote an environment for these organisms, these cyanobacteria to flourish. And we're seeing the end result of that. So we have a, this increasing human population on the landscape that does a lot to modify the terrestrial environment and it's borne out or the, we see the results in our aquatic ecosystems. Now, I think Fernand Lake actually is a very good example of that, correct? Correct. So we've had uh, quite a bit of 
in the early 80s, we had uh, clear-cut logging in the headwaters that uh, mobilized a slug of sediment that to this day is still moving through the system. And then we have had other changes in that system. And as a result, there's a lot of phosphorus coming in. And a lake is the sort of the bathtub of the, the drainage, bathtub of the landscape. Everything collects in it. And phosphorus, because it doesn't have a gas phase, there's no way really to get it out. And we've done some extensive studies on Fernand Lake in terms of the nutrient budget. So that's an accounting of how much comes in, how much goes out from all of the sources. Those sources can include rain, uh, dust deposition, inflows, and then obviously outflows on the uh, out towards uh, Lake Curd Lane. And when we do that, we find that about 81% of the phosphorus that comes in is actually retained inside of the lake. So these, it acts as a giant settling basin. And the result of that then is a, an annual, typically an annual bloom of fairly toxic cyanobacteria. In some cases, that lasts over 150 days. So most of the summer, the lake has a no contact advisory on it. And to be clear, 81%, that's compared to other lakes, really high? Um, it's not necessarily really high. It's just that it, it demonstrates how effective our water bodies are as um, retention basins where material comes in and then it doesn't leave. Okay. And you've been working on this lake quite a while. What are, what are you working on now or or are you are you pretty much done with your work there so this uh the project on fernand lake came about as a result of interested residents and uh, dq so that's our idaho department of environmental quality i had a master's student tria lacroix who did a very detailed analysis of all of the nutrients that come into the lake and then that leave the lake over time and then we've also worked with some residents. Uh, there have been some residents on the lake that have been very generous with their time to do uh, volunteer lake monitoring as part of a DQ program in Northern Idaho. And that individual was very interested, very generous with his time and access to boat. He took tree out every couple of weeks to sample and it saved us having to have a boat up there and it established a really nice connection with the community actually. So that project, right now the nutrient budget is done. We're just moving into a phase with DEQ where we're trying to figure out how there's a wetland on the east end of the lake, how to make that work and function properly. It, uh, there are some indications it's not functioning the way it should. And so DEQ is waiting to hear back from Ducks Unlimited to see what can be done or what their recommendation would be for returning that wetland to functioning status. So we're doing a little bit of monitoring here and there right now, but uh, the main part of, of that project is is in a holding pattern until we, we figure out the next steps with the uh, wetland. I can certainly see why the residents would be interested. I mean, one, you were saying the lake's out of commission for 100 days a year even. That's got to be frustrating and you know concerning with you know kids and dogs running around and stuff. And I would think it even changes you know the economics of the area the, these sorts of lakes have to have a pretty big impact on the local community i would think 
Sure, they do. Uh, so Fernand is one of the most fished waters in the state of Idaho. It, it draws a lot of locals and it draws a lot of people from other places. And then it has a, a rowing club on it. And then obviously the uh, big attraction is the lakeside residences in the city of Fernand Village, as it's called. So there's a, a tax base there, obviously. Then there's recreational amenities that come with that. And uh, other studies from other parts of the U.S. have shown that these uh, occurrence of these cyanohabs are really detrimental to local economies. And uh, that not only includes house prices, but also, as you mentioned, the recreational activities and then just the amenities that come with that. I should also mention before you indicated that uh, dogs and uh, children, it's got to be concerning for that. And it is. So one of the um, slogans that we have is if in doubt, stay out. And that's if it's really green on top, then, you know, keep your, your kids and your, your pets out of it. Pets are really susceptible to these cyanotoxins because the algae get caught in their fur and then they tend to lick themselves afterwards. So even though we don't uh, tend to get lethal doses, the dogs can because they get this concentrated slug of, of algae when they, they lick their fur. Okay. Well, I know you're also doing, it's a little more tangential to, to what you were doing in Fernand, but I know you're also looking at how wakes or the wave that uh, a boat makes and then regular waves, uh, natural waves made by wind or something like that, how that's affecting kind of the movement of sediments and phosphorus, aka down the line, something that might affect the cyanobacteria as well. Uh, down in Payette. Can you tell me about that study? Sure. So this uh, originated out of interest from, again, from residents and uh, lakeshore owners. We actually did the first study with an honor student up on Lake Kirtle Lane, and we do have a, a parallel study going there. But then at Payette, I have a, a new master's student. And the idea there is what is the effect of boat wakes? So anything that's human generated is what we call a wake. And then anything that occurs naturally on any natural disturbance, so wind primarily, is what we call waves. So we're trying to disentangle the effect of uh, boat wakes and natural waves and their impacts on the shoreline. So you know that when a wave and a wake comes ashore, there's uh, some turbidity that's generated. And that turbidity, the amount of turbidity that's generated is that sediment that's being uh, re-suspended into the water column. And that's dependent, highly dependent on the type of shoreline. So if you think about a wave or a wake crashing into a really hard rock, natural rock face, you're not going to liberate a lot of material. If it's sandy or cobble, it may get moved around a little bit and uh, not much happens. But then if you think about down to the sands and the silts, those get resuspended, And then the small particles have a very high surface area, the volume ratio, and guess what? The phosphate tends to stick to those particles. And when we move those small particles around, then there's a chance to liberate those nutrients. So our interest there is what is the effect of these activities that we're imposing on our lakes, these uh, mainly from recreational activities, what effect does that have on the liberation of nutrients in the near shore zone where we would expect to see the early onset of eutrophication first before we see it out in the in the big water column and in big lakes this is especially important 
because you're going to see the changes in the nearshore first before you see it offshore. So again, primarily stimulated by concerned residents. And now we have a fairly extensive study going to examine and disentangle the effect of wakes and waves, looking at both sediment release and resuspension in terms of turbidity that's created over time, and then also looking at and quantifying the nutrients that are released. And it's really important work, in my opinion, in terms that people can actually use this to potentially determine what sort of activities are appropriate and what sort of activities are not appropriate, or if there need to be some restrictions on certain activities. We're by no means saying that we should limit recreational activities on lakes. We're fully aware that our lakes are multi-use environments, but there's some activities that are appropriate in some lakes and maybe not in others or at a restricted level. I guess I would say, you know, we've determined that smoking is inappropriate indoors and it causes harm. And we're at the front of this in terms of uh, looking at some of these uh, disturbances created by recreational watercraft. But in this case, I mean, it sounds like by doing the science, you're giving the residents or, or the departments of environmental quality or, or whoever's interested in it, you're at least giving them the data and information that they need so that they can make scientifically based decisions. So they're not just guessing. Correct. And and so that's that's the other part I guess we haven't talked about is that although there's a few studies out, there's nothing locally and then very, very few studies actually quantify the nutrients that are released into the water column. So again, we're at the very forefront of this science looking at this and then quantifying the nutrients that are released into the water column as a result of these activities. So we have lots of anecdotal evidence, and I'm sure people are aware of this, of damage to shorelines or damage to infrastructure, uh, boats bobbing around. The concern arises primarily from this new type of watercraft that can create these massive wakes and the concern is that the wakes are much higher than anything that would be generated naturally. So we're trying to see where, at what level, above which level, these um, human-caused disturbances are having an effect. So you have worked with quite a few different groups of residents uh, throughout your studies. You know, these people are very engaged in what you're doing. Do you find that they're hungry for your data? Do, do you find that they push back? Like, what do you end up finding when you, you actually go and talk to everybody? So that's a, an interesting question. I think I would say probably uh, runs the, the rainbow. The uh, initial part, the Sionohabs, the groups that are interested in that obviously are lake user groups and it affects everybody. So no contact advisory affects everybody equally. It's basically stay out. So I think people being interested in the resources and having a, a healthy resource, everybody's pulling on the, on the same end of the wagon. And it's a pretty easy sell in terms of working with people. The interest is very high from obviously from shoreline residents and then also community residents. So we get a lot of interest from a wide spectrum of uh, the public. And there's some education involved with 
getting people to understand that and that's fine that's you know that's part of my job and I do teach at the university so it's a it's a kind of a natural extension it's a it's a di- different audience though from students but uh, people are surprisingly um, adept at understanding fairly complex science if you break it down for them now on the on the wake end of things we do have a bit of a polarized audience we do need to thread the needle correctly on that one. And again, as I said before, we're not against any sort of recreational activity, but if you look at Payette Lake, it's the drinking water for the city of McCall. So it's a source water. And as a result, it needs to have high water quality, otherwise it can't be used. So it affects the community directly in that sense. And it's also a huge recreational opportunity and draw for that area that fuels the summer activities. And I think first and foremost, it has to be in people's minds that we need to have a good resource to support all of these activities. Right. As you said, thread the needle between all the different users. Correct. (laughs) And then how we approach the the whole subject. So I, I tend to come at it from the fact that if the resource goes away, all of the amenities current connected to the resource go, go away as well. And that goes right from drinking water to good recreational opportunities to uh, good uh, tax base for waterfront property values. And I think people can really understand that. And then we just need to very level-headedly and logically sort out what uh, that resource can sustain and what we can, what we can do with it. Excellent. Well, Frank, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me on. If you found the intricacies of Frank's Toxic Lake research interesting, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. The new Visiting Tribal Scholars Program at the University of Idaho will connect Native American students in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics with Indigenous scientific methodologies that provides mentorship for student success. Erica Rader and Renee Love in the Department of Geography and Geological Sciences moved their summer 2020 field course online during the COVID-19 pandemic. They used online tools like Minecraft, which is a video game focused on exploration and construction, to teach students how to read a map, move about the landscape safely, and interpret rock formations. U of I researchers David Osband and Lisette Waits examined the effect of hunting on the genetic diversity of wolf populations. They found that hunting, because it creates opportunities for wolves to immigrate into nearby groups and breed, could make groups and subpopulations more related over time. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. If you want to learn more about Frank's work, I hope you'll visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory. There you can also read our show notes and email me with comments. And we'd love it if you would subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. You can help people find The Vandal Theory by leaving a rating and review while you're there. We really hope you're enjoying these stories. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.